and welcome to the History Teller Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the first West Virginia mine war from a narrative perspective. First things first, we'll go over some important background information to put these events into context. Coal mining in West Virginia began as a process called prospecting, and people just went out and dug. Eventually, this grew into a larger practice, and corporations got involved. By 1903, West Virginia was the third largest coal producer in the United States, and then coal production increased by five times as much by 1912. At the same time period, the number of mine employees in the state increased by 143%. Coal was a major industry for the state of West Virginia, and it was also a major source of jobs. But there was basically no regulation. For example, Frank Brooks explained that he started working in the mines in West Virginia when he was 13 years old. Because at the time, there was no such thing as a social security card. All you had to do was be big enough to do a day's work. Now we would have child labor laws that would prevent this sort of thing. But at the time, there wasn't much regulation, and what little there was was hardly ever enforced. They even created the West Virginia Department of Mines on February 24, 1905 to regulate working conditions in West Virginia's mines but they didn't really give the department any regulatory powers, so they couldn't enforce these standards. This might have been intentional. Coal companies had an incredible amount of control over the government, not just locally, but even at the state level. Actually enforcing safety regulations would have cut into their profit margin, and miners really couldn't say much about this either. Three quarters of miners lived in company towns, and in some districts, this number was closer to 90%. These mining towns were varied in size and structure, ranging from small camps to actual towns that offered then-modern conveniences, but there were some consistencies too. For example, when asked if there was a class system in the coal community in which he grew up, Bob Chapman answered, oh boy, was there ever, and explained that you didn't hardly associate if it was the foreman's kids. Companies acted as both employers and landlords, and in many cases, they owned the police forces, stores, and utilities as well. It was difficult for miners to stand up to their employers when those employers were also their landlords, because speaking up usually meant getting evicted. And if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds illegal. It wasn't back then, especially when companies had such an incredible degree of influence over the laws of the state. And even when the law wasn't on their side, the privately hired police forces usually were. Another aspect of life that was relatively consistent in mining towns was diversity. There was a large population of Spanish-American immigrants in West Virginia in the early 20th century, and a lot of them moved there to find work at the mines. In an interview, Helena Venturino Howell said that there was a number of Italian families in Williamson at the time, and they were all very close and helped each other when her family first immigrated to West Virginia in 1912. She went on to tell the story of the local Italian-Americans acting as midwives at her birth, and to explain how her mother acted as a midwife to one of the other women when she gave birth, which demonstrates the close sense of community. But the diversity in these mining communities was sometimes used against them. Coal operators would manipulate the miners, alternating between encouraging racial harmony and sowing racial discord, depending on what would allow them an advantage in the labor relations at the time. Life in the mining towns fostered a sense of camaraderie, but coal companies' tendency to use African Americans and European immigrants as strike breakers fostered animosity. This made developing a sense of class consciousness difficult because the operators discouraged cooperation between the miners across racial lines. Coal operators' behavior certainly doesn't excuse racism, but it does explain some of it. 
For example, the first major mining dispute in West Virginia took place in the Marmot Mines in Putnam County in January of 1881. Mine owners specifically brought in black men as strikebreakers in order to divide the labor movement along racial lines. They also hired private detectives, the Pinkertons, to quell the rebellion, protect property, and protect the strikebreakers. In 1894, there was another dispute, a strike at Eagle in Fayette County and at Boggs Run in Marshall County. The National Guard was actually called in to break up this strike. And then in 1902, 2,500 miners assembled and marched. Again, private detectives were hired to break up the strike, but this time, the mine owners hired Baldwin Feltz agents instead of Pinkerton. In the end, 36 leaders in the march were arrested, and the National Guard camped at Fayette County for three weeks afterwards. The United Mine Workers Union was actually able to get most of Cabin Creek unionized, but this dropped significantly in 1904. But in this sense, the mine war at Payton Cabin Creek was the culmination of two decades of miners' efforts to organize the coal fields of southern West Virginia. It wasn't new or random, and it actually evolved out of a context of continuous unrest. It's also important to talk about the key players involved in the first West Virginia mine war on Paint and Cabin Creeks. There were a lot of forces working against the coal miners. For example, the king of the state, U.S. Senator Clarence W. Watson from Fairmont, was the president of the Consolidated Coal Company in northern West Virginia. He owned 100,000 acres of land and had 15,000 mine workers. United States Senator William E. Chilton was the owner and manager of the Charleston Gazette, and he also owned a law firm with William McCorkle, a state senate leader. These two politicians represented four-fifths of the corporate interests in the state of West Virginia, including most of the coal mines. Governor Glasscock, a Republican from Monongalia County, and later Governor Hatfield, another Republican, but this time from McDowell County, both stood against the miners as well as they were both through mining areas and supported the mine owners. Taken together, these men demonstrate how incredibly difficult it was for West Virginia miners to speak out against mine owners. Most of the politicians had interests in the mines, so they made and enforced laws that furthered those interests, interests which were directly opposed to those of the miners. There were also some opportunists who took advantage of the chaos. O.J. Morrison was a Charleston merchant who took advantage of the demand for guns during the first mine war. Morrison was somewhat neutral because he sold Springfield rifles for just $1.98 to both striking miners and mine guards. He sold a thousand rifles and 14,500 rounds of ammunition between March and August of 1912. By playing both sides, he made a huge profit. Another opportunist was John Lang. Lang was the vice president of the United Mine Workers before 1900, but then he became a Cabin Creek coal operator and the head of the West Virginia Department of Mines during the strike. He even hired Baldwin Feltz agents in 1913. He stated that miners were illiterate, a lower element of labor, and that labor leaders are absolutely beneath recognition in my judgment, despite having been both a miner and a labor leader in the past. Another group that could be considered opportunistic were the so-called scabs who were brought to West Virginia to stand against striking miners in this first mine war. George Williams worked for the Industrial Corporation in New York and was hired by the Cabin Creek Coal Association as a labor agent. He was promised $3,000 per year to supply workers to break the strike, so he brought in a lot of strike breakers to the area. But the workers he brought in were often unable to read English well, so when they saw an ad stating that they could make good money and a home, they often answered without even realizing there was a strike. These miners weren't able to change their minds on the train, as these trains were often guarded by armed men at each end of the locked train car. One could argue that these scabs were opportunists as well, taking advantage of the opportunity to profit off the strike, 
and in the case of George Williams, that was certainly true. But for many of these men, they were just misled and misinformed. A few of them even joined the Union once they arrived. For example, Philip Cajano was a 125-pound, 22-year-old scab who joined the Union and was promptly fired and beaten the next day. George Lawson was another scab, a carpenter who was brought in as a strikebreaker. When he tried to escape from a house on Cabin Creek with several other strikebreakers by crawling through a window, mine guards knocked his teeth out. He managed to get away, but the mine guards caught him and beat him some more. He managed to escape again, and then he walked 15 miles to Montgomery to catch a train to New York. William Rayner was a 19-year-old cook from New York. He was promised $2 a day, but then he was told that he wouldn't be paid until the end of the month. After five days of sharing a two-room house with seven other men and making just $1, he was told that the Union miners would shoot him and kill him if he tried to leave. After 15 days, he escaped, and he walked 30 miles to Union District 17 in Charleston in December. When he got to Charleston, Mother Jones gave him 50 cents, some food, and a place to sleep, and then William Rayner walked another 23 miles to Handley to catch a train to New York. This will be my first winter in West Virginia, but I will say this. No one walks 53 miles in December unless they don't have any other option. But this anecdote also brings up another important figure in the West Virginia mine wars, Mother Jones. Ginny Savage Ayers wrote that it is nearly impossible to write the story of the mine wars without including the white-haired, grandmotherly figure who cursed like a sailor and exhorted miners to take up the fight, Mary Harris Mother Jones. In an interview, Price Williams, a local teacher during the first mine war, explained that the only thing ladylike about Mother Jones was that she wore skirts and she was very free with her profanity. Mother Jones returned to West Virginia in 1913 and led a march of 3,000 miners to Charleston. She warned that, Unless the governor rids paint and cabin creek of these goddamn Baldwin Feltz mine guard thugs, there is going to be one hell of a lot of bloodletting in these hills. She was an iconic, albeit polarizing, figure in these wars. Now that we've established some background information and discussed some of the important people involved in this first mine war, it's time to go over the timeline of events. Since 1902, mine operators at Paint and Cabin Creeks had hired Baldwin Feltz detective agents to act as mine guards and to protect the strikebreakers that were brought in. In April of 1912, 7,500 miners staying at Paint and Cabin Creeks went on strike, demanding better pay, free speech, and an end to the blacklisting of union men. In response, the mine owners once again contracted the Baldwin Feltz detective agency, and on May 10, 1912, 300 Baldwin Feltz men arrived to evict striking miners from their company-owned houses. These miners and their families set up camp at Hollygrove, with men, women, and children all living in tents. The Baldwin Feltz agents had set up a non-union village at Mucklow, where they were well armed with pistols, rifles, and machine guns. Throughout the strike, there were constant clashes between Hollygrove and Mucklow. On June 5, 1912, there was a battle near Mucklow in which mine guards killed an Italian-American man and wounded an African-American man. The Baldwin Feltz agents arrested several minors, but the grand jury actually indicted the Baldwin Feltz agents for the murder of the Italian-American man. There were no charges for wounding the African-American man, and nothing ever came from the murder charges. On July 26, 1912, after yet another battle between Mucklow and Hollygrove, Governor Glasscock called in the National Guard. By mid-August, Glasscock had issued calls for a peace conference, but Taylor Vinson, a mine operator's attorney, refused to cooperate with the conference unless the United Mine Workers Union was not officially recognized. At this time, there were five 
5,000 striking miners on Peyton Cabin Creek, as well as several hundred railway policemen, Baldwin Feltz agents, special constables, and 1,300 militiamen. The situation was on the cusp of turning incredibly violent when Governor Glasscock appointed a commission to look at the strike on August 28, 1912. This commission consisted of three men, Reverend P.J. Donahue of Wheeling, Captain S.L. Walker of Fayetteville, and the Honorable Fred O. Blue of Charleston. The commission found that miners in West Virginia had no reason to want a union, as they were paid the same rates as miners in unionized fields, and the sole reason they didn't earn more money was because they were lazy and did not work as often as the union miners did. The commission also found that the operators in this state are within their rights in declining to recognize a union. This came as a huge blow to the striking miners and led to a renewed fervor on their part. The strike turned violent again just a few days later, on September 1st, 1912, when a battle at Mucklow led to 16 deaths. On September 2nd, 1912, martial law was declared in the area of Paint and Cabin Creek. During these periods of martial law, many Baldwin Feltz agents and other mine guards would act as members of the National Guard, but after martial law ended, they would change their uniforms and be hired back as mine guards. In this sense, the National Guard was being used as a strike-breaking agency, and a mine guard by any other name smelled just as much like gunpowder. Also, when these militiamen were technically acting as mine guards, not members of the National Guard, they still acted as though they had the authority to make arrests, even when the area was not under martial law. For example, Frank Nance was arrested by a member of the National Guard who was, at the time, acting as a mine guard outside of martial law. Nance appealed the case to the state Supreme Court, but he lost 4-1. to one. Under this martial law, many miners were sentenced severely, and the right to habeas corpus, or bail, was suspended. Though both sides in this conflict resorted to violence, it seemed like only the miners faced consequences for their violent actions while Baldwin Feltz agents, police, and mine guards were praised and even promoted for their use of violence. Also, Governor Glasscock would grant conditional pardons to striking miners that had been arrested on the condition that those who received the pardon would no longer associate with the Union. This acted as a newer, more severe version of the yellow dog contracts coal operators had often used to fire workers who unionized. Basically, miners either had to give up their rights to free speech and peaceful assembly, or they had to go back to prison. Not too long after this, martial law was declared again, after the Battle of Bull Moose. The Bull Moose train was a C&O railway train with a passenger car and an armored baggage car, which was often used to transport strike bakers. On Friday, February 7, 1913, Kanawha County Sheriff Bonner Hill received news from Mucklow that there was another battle happening between Hollygrove and Mucklow. Sheriff Hill was instructed to take the Bull Moose train to the area with a stack of warrants. There were only 15 or 16 men on the train, including five or six special deputies, a coal operator, and a few other men. No one knows exactly who shot first, but when the train arrived at Hollygrove around 11 p.m., a battle broke out with the men on the train firing on men, women, and children in Hollygrove. Francis Francesco was killed, and when his pregnant wife ran to his cousin's nearby shack to get help, she found that her cousin-in-law had been shot in the leg. Annie Hall, a mother of five, was shot through both of her feet as she lay asleep in her bed. The remaining miners assembled the next day, planning to avenge the shooting. When the sheriff returned to arrest everyone Monday, another battle broke out. Two of the operator's men were killed, and Governor Glassclock declared martial law again four days later. Then Governor Hatfield took office. He tried to put an end to the fighting. He issued the first Hatfield Agreement, a verbal agreement with the United Mine Workers Union, in April 1913. It didn't provide for any increase in pay, for the abolition of the mine guard system, or for any official recognition of the union. Basically, the miners got virtually none of what they had been asking for, and they were understandably upset. They continued to strike on and off, but overall, the first West Virginia mine war had come to a close.